0: I'm Khaled Keith perry
1: I'm Christina Keith perry
0: And this is On Carrying a Concern.
1: Stories of friends in service.
0: This week on the show, we have Elizabeth L. Dearborn. And we met with her on a beautiful afternoon in the summer of 2016. In her home in Putney, Vermont. For an incredible conversation.
1: We will... Learn about the ways in which her experience of being drawn into the Religious Society of Friends became a continuing thread of guidance throughout her life.
0: And for the first time in the show, we'll hear the story of someone who clearly um, had a leading and a concern and traveled in the public ministry and then set it down. And we'll hear about um, kind of the context for that. In this story. As usual, um, things are broken up into large chunks by music. So if you want a shorter listening experience, as the music comes on, you can kind of drift out there and then come back and pick it up later. All the transcripts and queries and reflection questions to go along with it are on the website, ocacshow.org. And without further ado,
1: let's have a conversation with Elizabeth Dearborn.
0: The the place to start, or we hope to start, is how did you find your way to the Religious Society of France?
2: So, at uh, fourteen, I was very uh, disheartened by the Unitarian group in San Jose, California, <laughs> and I heard there were there were Quaker uh, programs for high school students. Run by the American Friends Service Committee high school program. So I went to one of those in ninth grade in the, uh, during Christmas vacation. And I, I, I walked in the room and I could feel something I would now call the presence, but I didn't know any language for it or have any mm. coming from a Unitarian family pretty, Anti-Christian, there was no formation around spirit mm. that I was aware of in that sense. So, there I am. I'm in the high school <laughs> program. I, I become, my master. to join the committee of people planning it. I meet all these other people. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I have an immersion in community and action together. Mm-hmm. with people who, so that's how it started. And so I'm...
0: And it was immediately felt like home or...
2: Absolutely. Wow. That experience. My connection with the man who was the program person for uh, for the AFSC, a man named Chuck Gardner, uh, lasted as long as he was alive, which was maybe another 20 years. Oh. He left the service committee and became the right-hand man for Cedar Chavez organizing the wow. Farm Workers Union. Wow. He was an unusual human. He was not a Quaker. He kept bringing people in from all walks of life to be part of these high school experiences. Mm-hmm. So, but he gave me the introduction to Quakers. And then in my, my late twenties, I am I'm getting divorced and I'm, I've finished my PhD and I'm going back and going back to meet I'm looking for what was that thing I had mm. in high school. And I went to Berkeley meeting and became part of the group of 14 who formed Strawberry Creek meeting. Mm. So there was tremendous vitality and, um, you know, almost immediately I was in a prayer group with some pretty powerful people. And after a few years, fairly rough years for me, um, people in my meeting independently said, it's the time for you to go to Pendle Hill. So this is 1981. I'm like, okay, I just finished uh being startup uh, director of a shelter for battered women. Yeah. So I'm tired, and people can tell that and it seems like a good idea and i think i'm going for like 10 weeks and i'll come back and you know maybe move to santa cruz where there's a great meeting and you know maybe i'll you know just this so i go to pendle hill
0: being sent and really
2: basically yeah <laughs> people in my meeting said it's time for you to go different people not actually a committee People got the idea separately and Mm -hmm. told me at the meeting in August. I I heard it from several different sources. Mary Mache said to me, uh, so come over to my house when you get home and I'll show you the, you know, I'll give you the brochure. (laughs) So I walked into her house, you know, her apartment, and and she was on the phone, so she just pointed across the room. (laughs) There was the brochure and on top of it was a check for a thousand dollars that said loan. To Betsy, that's who I was then, Betsy Dearborn for study at Pendle Hill. I was like, okay. You know, this makes it, you know, that much more possible. So I went. Uh Parker Palmer was the dean at that time. Bill and Fran Tabor were on staff their first year. They'd been students the year before. Uh Sandra Cronk was also on staff. And, uh, Catherine Damiano, I think, came, like, uh, a year later, because this other woman, Sally Gordon, was mm-hmm. the secretary in the beginning. That was the job that Catherine felt when Sally left. So, I'm at Pendle Hill, and, you know, what do I know about Quakerism? Because I've come up in Pacific Early Meeting, as much as I have, you know, these maybe four years, something I've had of Pacific Early Meeting, which is dynamic in its own way, so. So I'm there, and Parker is named as my consultant, my spiritual consultant, and, you know, it's like week two, and I'm sitting in the, uh I'm, I'll am just, there are many stories you can tell, as you can imagine, about Temple Hill, but it's two weeks into the term, or in the attic, because I've established a, a studio space in the attic of the barn. And Jesus walks into the room while I'm sitting with Parker. And, you know, basically my experience of following leadings had been embodied by all these people in the AFSC that I knew. Uh, They were varying kinds, but some of them were people who were of a deep formation. And I had no christian i had anti-christian upbringing Mm. so i was in a dilemma of Mm. sorts but i also understood that if that was happening i could trust my experience Mm. and i had just come out of you know like two years of a war zone so you know i needed if you will refreshment I, i needed to be someplace i don't think i thought that then but i can see now it was like a Experience. I had had one other experience two years before, where I had seen in meeting for worship, like an archangel, I would say, and I, I never spoke about it to anyone because it was quite, uh, uh, it was beyond my ability to speak about it. And so when Jesus walks into the room, I. At the moment that he arrives and reaches his hand out to Parker, me my eyes are closed. This is all happening in the inward scope. Parker starts to speak. And so that I mean that experience uh shifted my life. I, I, a few weeks later, I said to Sandra Crunk that, you know, it was so busy and noisy at Pendle Hill, I needed to go someplace else because I was having these experiences with Jesus. She said, well, let me give you the name of this monastery. So I went to the monastery. So again, it continued there. So I began to understand that I was under a level of guidance that I had not (laughs) been before, that... My uh, you know I was kind of ripe for it in a sense because I didn't have any other like religious instruction really the didn't really provide that, and yet I'd had this profound experience of community and service, and then starting strawberry creek is is was a fabulous experience and you know my very first committee that i served on was clerked by barbara graves so i mean i you know it was just like epic i was walking into epic quaker experience Mm -hmm. there and then in the east as well i mean how many people get to spend like their first year of real Quaker study with bill and fran Tabor? i mean it was just awesome so i follow the leadings. Like, within a month, maybe, I hear a voice that says, move to Philadelphia. So, I'm like, move to Philadelphia. I'm from five generations of California. No one in five generations has lived outside the state. So, I can say to you now, well, I mean, I gave over, but at the time, you know, it was just like, uh, it was, uh, and and and, of course, this is the life this was the right life for me, but it was it was it was incomprehensible on a certain level
3: mm-hmm.
2: to be stepping out of the identity that I had been raised to be in, mm-hmm. but there was also good reason to do it. I mean, I was on a i was following the thread, mm-hmm. so when that begins to happen, you have a
0: choice you know so and did it feel this is something that has come up and I'm curious did it feel like a choice when it was happening that you could have said yes or no I and mean, was it that clear it was kind of like I, a... I
2: I don't think it was uh like a choice I think it was that I was getting my sea legs hmm. in a new identity maybe
0: So while we're in the studio listening to it back, um, she says, what did I know about Quakerism? I'm from Pacific Yearly Meeting. And you laughed. And um, you're from there, right? You came up to Quakerism uh, in that same space. That's right. You've worshipped at Strawberry Creek. You kind of worked for Santa Cruz Meeting with the teens. You were clerk of Humboldt County. So Pacific Yearly Meeting uh, is the place that you grew up in or your roots were in in Quakerism, not as a youth, but as an adult. You came to friends there. Why is it so funny to you?
1: I think it's a combination of a laugh of recognition. My the very first meeting of which I was a member was Strawberry Creek meeting, and uh,
0: after the eighties,
1: yes, certainly after it was begun by the fourteen people that she mentions splitting off from Berkeley um, meeting the on Vine Street. Strawberry Creek has a rich and powerful formation now. It's it's a different place than, than I think she talks about. Also, Pacific Yearly Meeting's an interesting yearly meeting. It's a B night yearly meeting, an independent yearly meeting.
0: What is what does B night mean?
1: Uh Joel and Hannah Bean traveled out there from Iowa. Iowa, that's what I was gonna say. And they founded the College Park meeting, which unlike Quaker meetings to that point was not under the care of any other yearly meeting and um since then what has grown up as Pacific Yearly Meeting is not affiliated with the larger quaker organizations of friends general conference friends united meeting evangelical friends church international it remains an independent and unaffiliated body um and there's a kind of a western western spirit among friends in the West, uh, where there's some sort of unique innovations and evolutions of Quakerism, different than Pendle Hill.
0: Culturally speaking, um, would you say that Pacific yearly meeting friends are far more likely to be kind of of the universalist bent than the Christian bent?
1: When I was there, yes. I think that's true, or that was true. Um, not I can't not
0: necessarily that all friends in the East Coast certainly are, kind of identify as Christians, but it's even rarer in Pacific Yearly Meeting.
1: I think that that was true. But I need to say it's been a decade mm-hmm. since I've been to Pacific Yearly Meeting.
0: But maybe um, when uh, Elizabeth was there, that probably would have been the case. I bet So, I mean, I think it suggests that the the, the relevance of that is, you know, when she starts to kind of really explore Quakerism in her own faith, the fact that she uh, begins to have these visual experiences in worship um, of an archangel and uh, Jesus, uh, there are ways in which maybe that would have been uh, very surprising to her that that's not her native um, visual language for faith. Um, I don't know what was, but that was not kind of the way in which her kind of, um, what does she call it? Uh, the inward scope was turned. So whatever she's seeing in the inward landscape with her inward scope um It surprised her that these very Christian images were the things that kind of came to her as she was reflecting.
1: Well, certainly she talks about growing up in a Unitarian home that was anti-Christian, that there was no faith formation. There was a kind of an anti-formation. And so she describes the dilemma of having these spiritual experiences that included this very Christian content, Jesus. Yeah. Um, And she also says that she had had enough experience among friends to know that she could trust in that experience, mm-hmm. even though it went counter to the anti-formation formation that she received as a young person.
0: Okay. So what's interesting to me um, is how clear she is around turning points. Now, again, she's had her whole life to reflect on this, but she has this incredible line Um, which I think is worth spending some time on. She said, I came under a level of guidance I had not had before. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear that to mean kind of as she's processing there at Pendle Hill, uh, meeting regularly with Parker and other folks and kind of having um, kind of cognitive or notional learning with the Tabers, but also worship, Um, with, from Bill and Fran and kind of building up and hearing vocal ministry and the kind of daily worship of Pendle Hill, um, receiving pastoral care, support and guidance deepening from Parker Palmer, um, meeting with Sandra Cronk, um, Catherine Damiano. I mean, there are a lot of friends at Pendle Hill at that time who are, who are deeply engaged in kind of spiritual growth and um, she's kind of thrust into the midst of it with 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 a sense of openness that she then allows to guide her. And um, I'm struck with the ways in which, um, you know, the particularity of this story is really important. We don't all have the ability to kind of go off to uh, Pendle Hill for a year. Um, and, and Pendle Hill might not even be um what uh Pendle Hill was or it's different. It's changed. And I guess one of the things that I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about is, you know, part of the show is kind of giving people some of these narratives to kind of maybe see their own story in, but also to kind of hear some larger trends about how it is that people are called into service. Kind of how is it that it, it what's the experience of carrying that concern? And I'm wondering for those folks who are out there and are thinking, well, good, good for her that she could go spend a year of her life in retreat in Philadelphia. Like, what, what? So, what, what do we say to them about 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 the reality that this isn't everyone's um, path, but there may be something there for them? Like, do you have a thought about how that works?
1: So, can I just clarify? So, these are not everyone has Mary Mache in their life to invite them over and give them a check,
0: a thousand dollars to say go be in retreat, right?
1: And a thousand dollars in the '80s was yeah something.
0: Hmm. I'll take a thousand dollars today, but I mean, like, so so someone's listening there, rolling their eyes, going, "Great!" All, like, first thing I do, got to do is find someone who has a thousand dollars for me or five thousand dollars for me. Like, wh- how do we? What is? What about this story? And how do we in- encourage people to listen? If you're feeling, you know, this is an unusual story.
1: So she had the opportunity to go away and to set her life apart from the busyness and and rhythms of of occupation to do this work. I think that what stands out for me was it also that she was able to make connections to people. We may not need to travel across the country to deeply connect with people who are on fire. And this is a little foreshadowing, but Elle will talk about the ways in which the challenge that we face as people pursuing our own spiritual path is to find the time and make the space and connect open-heartedly and deeply with people who will meet us in in that space now as i say that i realize it may not be possible because the demands of Work and paying rent and um, just childcare life in the 21st century may make it really hard to carve out that time. So maybe it's up to us to find some really creative ways to carve out spaces that allow all kinds of people to make those connections and to to have. Not the support to travel across the country, but the support to follow the thread, their thread.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm thinking also that, you know, we can hear this in the other direction, not merely like, oh, I don't get that in my life. But maybe for some of us to say, am I doing my due diligence to support other people in their journey? Right. So I don't have a $1,000 really to give someone, but, but maybe I do have um, a weekly cup of coffee. And a place to sit and worship, or the opportunity to get to know someone outside of meeting, or, and it goes on and on and on. And I think, I think one of the things to think about is the both-endedness of this. For people who are feeling the call to ministry, sometimes they need a space to kind of process and figure out what's going on. And it's also the case that people need to help support to make that space, and, and, and sometimes people who are being called into ministry are also some of the people that we need to have to help make space for each other. I mean, I think there's all kinds of ways in which the, the kind of space making is an important part of this story.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And that's what I was trying to get at when I was was uh, saying we need to think creatively about about making spaces. What comes to mind is we all need to eat dinner and we can get together and, and provide spaces for folks to come together over a meal and share some of this journey. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think, you know, part of the thing that is really interesting in Elizabeth's story is, um, you know, I have to imagine that, you know, given the intensity of what she's going through, you know, some of those conversations um, people might not have felt comfortable with unless they themselves were prepared for a kind of depth. So she says, I'm, I'm, when I asked her about, did she have a choice? She says, "No, I was getting sea legs. I was developing a new identity, and you know, having been in this work a while, you know, when you have conversations with people who are deep in the midst of a kind of a um, conviction or conversion experience, it's really intense. And I think um, allowing for the possibility that the the nurture and connection we have with one another will take place over the time in which new identities are made." new lives are found is really pretty incredible. And I'm not always in the mindset to be aware of that, the, de- the depth of transformation that's possible. And this is a good reminder to me about how much, how much can happen if we allow kind of any way, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways, right? In the Psalms, um, th- th- what does it mean to like be prepared for a transformation in, in each other and to kind of wait and expect and experience that, is different than saying oh I'm just gonna have coffee again next week or next week or next week like what if what if God's work in someone is such that they're c- coming onto a new sense of sea legs a new sense of identity
1: one of the things I hear in there is that creating the space is not only creating the time the appointed hour for coffee but also opening the the space of possibility for transformation and and believing in that expecting that is available to others
4: yeah
0: and at least in, in her case the kind of that preparation that the kind of beginnings of that transformation leads to kind of some very significant kind of next steps
2: i Pendle Hill at the end of the 10 months, and I'm working in a Quaker camp. Because I didn't have enough money to stay for the whole year, so there's a woman at Chestnut Hill meeting, Trudy Hubbins, I think is her name, who put me up in exchange for doing some like gardening work for her on the weekends, and then I spent like four days a week at Pendle Hill. As a result, I'm going to Chestnut Hill meeting mm-hmm. on Sundays. And the very first Sunday I'm there, so this is like spring term, so let's say it's like end of March. Very first Sunday I'm there, um, a man stands up and in a Scottish brogue recites a line of poetry from Marianne Moore, uh, which was something like, love is an exceptional thing, or something like that. So I go to talk to him afterwards, and it turns out that he's a, poet, and I am also, he suggests that we just send each other a poem every week, and then meet up on Sundays and connect. Mm -hmm. He's in his 70s. I'm 35. So we create that kind of friendship. The following summer, when I'm at the Quaker camp across the river in New Jersey, earning a little money, he comes to visit on my birthday. His name is Bryce Kemp. He was part of Chestnut Hill meeting for for a long time, a bookseller, never driven a car, very simple man, He came to visit me at the Quaker camp, and he said, I'd like to give you my estate. He said, pardon? And he said, well, I see that you're following the spirit, and I want to, before my wife died, we talked about that we wanted to give our estate to someone who would carry on our values, and I see that you're doing that. So, you know, I said, let me let me just stay in touch with you because I'm going to be traveling for a few months down to the to find of partners, and then I'll be out in California, and and then I'll come back to Philadelphia. Let's let's just stay in touch so I understand what it is you're really asking me, because it was so unexpected. Mm-hmm. So he said, fine. And in fact, you know, when I got back to california and ran out of money and couldn't pay rent on the chicken coop that i was living in, in sonoma county he 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 gave me, he sent a, a check and uh that got me you know through that little moment and when i came back with my car and my life possessions having sorted them all out and bringing just what was coming into the next life so a year later whatever it was six months later I arrived at his house and he said, So I have, I've set up an appointment with a lawyer tomorrow so that I can, you know, have you registered as the person who's inheriting my estate. So we, so that all happened. And I was given this estate and house, so funds to travel and teach. And so we all, so it all, it was all part of, there was a grand plan going on, but, you know, so I come back and There, when I come back to Philadelphia, uh, Bill and Fran and Sandra and Catherine Damiano and Barbara Snipes and a woman named Patricia Brown are all in a, they're a group of elders, basically. And they invite me into that group and I share some of what's going on because I'm beginning to see more deeply. And they, two two things are going on. So this is one of them. So this eldering, and they send me to North Carolina to have my visions authenticated.
3: And did they tell you that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. They said, so there's only one other person, Bill says, that is seen like you are in the Society of Friends. It's not common. So here's a possible next step. You know how they would say. They wouldn't say, You need to go, they would say, Here is a possible next step. So I went to to stay with Caroline Treadway mm-hmm. and uh, uh whom I had never met. And in the morning, the next morning we had worship and Jesus came in the worship and poured oil over her head. So over lunch that day I say to her Uh so Jesus was there this morning in the in the worship you and I had. Yes, she said, You see him and I feel him, and he was there. And I said, But I didn't understand what he was doing. So then I described this experience of him pouring oil over her head. And and she said, My son died of AIDS three weeks ago. And then I meet with uh, David, David, the, he's a, the bulldog for God, yeah. yes, yes. Right. you know who I'm talking about. <laughs>
0: yes. Right. Yes, then yes, I know yeah. that, and
4: this
2: is Well, that's a good way to remember him, yeah. So and then I met with him, also, and he did a sort of a deep scrutinizing, and I married to Richard by this time, I think, so. So, this must be like in the elders group a few years later. This is not right when I come back. I'm, I'm, and I also, so I live in Philadelphia for a few years and I have this group of elders and I have this leading to do, I mean, this is a gift, right, that has come to me. So, I mean, the whole biblical stories about spiritual gifts and all of that. One of the things that I did after Pendle Hill when I came back to the East Coast after seeing the lawyer was I then I spent three months in residence at the Church of the Savior where, where the vital and sort of life of a church was revealed to me on the whole idea of spiritual gifts and raising them up. And so I, so Tom Swain and I then established this thing called the Gifts Group in Philadelphia. Anyway, so there are like maybe eight of us, and we are uh, traveling. We, we meet, I think we met every week or every other week for three hours, an hour of worship, an hour of sharing, and an hour of work. And the work was that, I mean, almost immediately upon forming, Tom Swain and I began to be invited to teach about spiritual gifts, which is fundamental in the Church of the Savior. And so we cr- began to create ways of doing this among friends and traveling in ministry to Ohio, to Pittsburgh, yeah. to, you know. So Philadelphia, I mean, to Baltimore, to to Northampton, meeting to so. So we're cre- we're a group. So I have a group of elders of the what we we'll call them, you know, like uh, incredibly seasoned people, and then I have a group who are that. The, the the uh holding the work together, and all have their own engagement in the unfolding of gifts.
0: So. And when is this approximately?
2: When is this happening? Yeah,
0: the nin- nineties, the
2: nineties. Um. So Pendlehill was eighty-one. So this is probably eighty-three, okay. four, five, six, because I'm still doing it in six. 86, but that's when I married Richard, moved to, moved to Washington and I, and couldn't be in the group. Right. Because, and, and but. You all were part of the same meeting. It was. No, we're all from all part of Philadelphia. Right. right. So it was just like, uh, inc- it was exactly what I wanted. You know, people who were on fire in the same way for the Society of Friends, but also out of this deep, experience of being being given guidance mm. however it manifested in each of them people were all on fire and wanting to live into that in some way that made sense today so so that was that was the cooker i would say that was the cooker of my. so what i have done since is simply lived into the guidance and various forms, but that of, of ministry and participation in meetings, but that was, that was the hub of what looked like traveling in the ministry. Those maybe five years. I found once I had a child, which I did a year after, and retired teaching at Sidwell and, you know, that I can, I led some, Retreats in Baltimore, yearly meeting, and in Philadelphia, but I really, and one in California, but I couldn't really travel in the same way. It was just too much to continue. And and I was no longer able to meet in that group. So there was this sort of, that came to a kind of natural end. And while I I worked with Frank Massey in Baltimore, yearly meeting, developing this Residential program that happened for a couple of years called Quaker Leadership Institute,
1: and that was dynamic,
2: and it was envisioned to be only two years. You know, it would it would happen for two years, yeah. and it would give people this experience of, you know, and I uh, of uh, a vision for how you live into ministry mm. in, and and connection with the other people who were also alive. Are coming alive in that sense in Baltimore, so that was also out of the same genre.
4: And
0: and during this period of time, and you can kind of imagine, we can think like from all all through those kind of six hub years. Um, what was your what was the relationship between these leadings and your occupation? I mean, your 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 work.
2: So I, uh, I get back to Philadelphia. I'm, uh, working in the Chestnut Hill Health food Store. So not too far from the meeting house. Initially. Because I could get a job there. I, I said to the, to the woman when I saw this little sign in the window, because Bryce's house wasn't too far from there. Um, when I saw the sign that said they needed help, I, I went in and and spoke to her and I said, this may be a little funny, but I have a PhD. Oh, she said, you'll just work in great here. <laughs> so there were lawyers and, <laughs> you know, all that. So, so I worked there while, while, uh, while the perfect job was manifesting, which turned out to take a few months. But, um, in February, so like six months later, I was hired by the Friends World Committee on Consultation mm-hmm. to be staff for the wider Quaker Fellowship which is Lucas Jones's, one of his projects, and to work under Gordon Brown in Philadelphia three days a week, which was perfect. So I did some traveling for the World Committee also. And it was in that context about a year and a half later. I mean, I met Richard maybe a year later, and two years later, got married, three years later. Night, anyway, it was all happening. And then in the years... When I have a small child, and Richard is working, I have money. I'm not. And then, I, I'm i not wanting to return to working necessarily for a Quaker organization, because I have begun to get these images of hands. So I just, my journals in those years just had these, I just, I don't like Outline my hands and I color them in in all these different ways. There's something going on with my hands. So I t- I, I talk to Richard about going to massage school. And he says you just can't imagine it. He still thinks of me as a psychologist because I have a PhD. So it's the rest of this stuff that he doesn't. He hasn't yet had the great spiritual opening that he has going to have. He hasn't had it yet. So you know he's kind of he's kind of beginning to like. Mm you know, something, but but what, what, you know, what is it for him? I want to go to massage school, and it takes a year for him to get on board with that. And finally, we're at Pacific Early Meeting, and this guy, Clark Dixon-Moses, follows oh. us around for 24 hours, practically, to get Richard in this conversation. By the end of the conversation, he says, okay, you can go to massage school. We come home to Washington, I contact the massage school. Somebody has just dropped out. They're going to start a class in three days. I can be in that slot. You know how it is. So so I became trained as a massage person. And within a few days after that, somebody from Strawberry Creek comes to visit and says, massage? used to be a psychologist? You want to know about Rosen work? Mm. (laughs) So I was like, okay. Sends me information, connects me with this woman, Louise Berry, who is going to be teaching on the East Coast for the first time, bringing Rosen out of Berkeley. To the East Coast, and Louise is, um, a student, long time student of Meher Baba's. Hmm. And she does this work called Rosenworks, of which I know nothing about. And in that context, Jesus came into the room frequently. Sometimes others, others, hmm. uh, also. Uh, my brother who had died sometimes came. It was, uh, an opportunity that, that, uh, you know, gave me a chance to use that gifts in a different, in a different form. And I didn't speak about it, uh, uh, unless there was some reason to speak about it. But it was very moving to me. Very moving to me to be able to you know, walk to work and be in this space, mm-hmm. you know, for five hours or something and come home and make another changes and you know, it just allowed the two to work together. Mm-hmm. I had a husband who was making good money and had been a wise steward, so I mean I could mm-hmm. the whole financial thing I covered my expenses and I made money but but I didn't make a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. But I could I could live from the place that I needed to live from. And I did that until So I did that for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And when we came here, I was under, like, I, the, the direction had, the, had quieted. That's the way I would call it. quieted. So I just recently got the, got, I mean, began to be able to, to, uh, be, use, use those skills again with people just like muscle testing on things and you know just so for 10 years i've been in a holding pattern because not in the holding pattern i had no idea if it was going to open again
3: mm-hmm.
2: but just under under clear a clear understanding that the energy needed not to go out
3: mm-hmm.
2: that i needed to be in a period of rest mm-hmm. and uh when you're channeling it's very uh It's very compelling, but at the same time, there's a certain energy drain on the physical body, and I needed to stop. I needed to stop, so I did.
1: in this section i continued to be impressed by the ways that her journey seemed to unfold in the, in the kind of classical sense that friends talk about of way opening of opportunities unfolding before her as she l- listened and sort of moved deeper into a life lived under guidance
0: what was what was the word you used there classic is that right
1: Yeah, I think that friends talk about way opening, that that's part of the evidence maybe is a way to say it, that you're following faithfully, the next step is clear and opportunities present themselves that are consonant with the leading that you are having or or support the the journey and the work. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the, and the thing that, that strikes me the most significantly there um, is around the sense of kind of openness, right? The open, kind of big T, big O, is, is kind of itself a countercultural position to take, right? Once you have a PhD in psychology, you're a psychologist. Right. I mean, th- that's the way that it's supposed to go, right? By the time... When you're in school, you're a doctoral student. When you're out of school, you're whatever it is that you got minted in the doctoral process. And so to end up working at a co-op and becoming a massage therapist, not because you feel like you have to because you can't find a job in your field, but because it seems like that's what you're being called into is um, a really kind of unusual story, I think. Right. And I think the other part around kind of what, what she's doing there during that same time when she's kind of aware that things might be changing and that maybe what she's supposed to be doing is broader. Um, and the thing that strikes me as more kind of classical um, or classic is that she surrounds herself with this intense container of accountability and discernment, right? So in lots of ways, kind of her story around carrying a concern actively in public ministry is really only five years long. It's it's that period in time when she's really intensely worshiping at the Church of the Savior. She feels like she got some real clarity around some folks down in North Carolina, um, yearly meeting conservative,
4: mm-hmm.
0: right? Um, and there was a sense of power. And importance at Church of the Savior, but she was clear it wasn't home, however, at the same time, she had that group of eight people or so that was accompanying her as she was traveling through I guess Pennsylvania and the Baltimore area Philadelphia yearly meeting I think maybe up in New England also doing all these workshops on spiritual gifts, and so she was being held in in prayer she was being kind of Formed. She had kind given her life over, and then um, she was in public ministry, traveling and teaching or doing retreats. And the, the classic part of that is the ways in which she has so many people in her circles that are kind of part of her own accountability and her own desire, not her own desire, her own uh, n- network and support um, that allows her to kind of continue doing that work.
1: She uses the language hub yeah she says that 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 elders group in Philadelphia and the gifts group that those two groups that came together were the hub for her of traveling in ministry, a group that was set on fire in the same level and 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 living into guidance in the same way that she felt like she was on fire and living into guidance.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it goes back to, it reminds me of uh, the Prophetic Stream again, which is a link in here because uh, Bill Tabor himself was one of her earliest teachers in Quakerism. And I, I wonder about the connection made there because one of the things he says in the Prophetic Stream is that he understands the kind of early motion of uh, our traveling ministers as something similar to the band of prophets from from the Hebrew scriptures. That the prophecy can be caught. It's like a it's like a um, kind of a collective catching on of measles or catching on fire or something. And that it's not really just a solo show, the kind of lone prophet on the hill. Um, it's more of a kind of roving band of of people who are there to support one another to, to push each other into kind of greater depths and greater faithfulness, but also then to be able to kind of rein them back in, right? This hub idea is is very different than the go-it-alone approach. And when hubs are possible, I think they're incredibly powerful. And I think a lot of people, I know, I long for that, and I feel to some degree I, that some of that does emerge. But there's also seasons when you're like, what the heck? I am all alone out here, you know? And And so that's a good kind of a noticing or a yearning that sometimes manifests, but it, but isn't always. And that's and another place to think of, like, what could we do to make sure that we're supporting one another better? This is another place where that shows up, because not everyone has access to that kind of hub.
1: Right, right.
0: I mean, in some ways, right, I think that's what our ministries and councils are supposed to do, is, is provide kind of weight, right, the weighty friends. are supposed to provide the weightiness, accountability, encouragement, for people who are living into ministry to kind of more fully live into it. I don't know as if our ministries and councils always do that, but it seems to me as if that's part of kind of what their function could be.
1: Could be, and especially is in the, to use a phrase that's common, in the sort of DNA of what ministries and councils are. They came out of the ministers, elders, and overseers meeting together. And one of the things that that group of friends provided each other on second day was support and accountability and guidance. So if if our ministries and councils, mini, if our committees of ministry and council are inheritors of that tradition, then it, it does seem like it's clearly a function that that they should be doing.
0: In some ways, this next piece seems like a little bit of a tangent, but it strikes us, Christina and I, that part of what we're trying to do here is kind of capture an oral history of some of the ways that these friends have come across other friends and the overlapping ways in which there are characters that are kind of part of our collective stories. And one of the names that got uh, raised up by uh, Elizabeth is this guy, David Martin, um, who gets referred to as a bulldog for God, down in North Carolina, yearly meeting conservative. And um, David is at the center of a very significant portion of, of life that Christina and I shared. And so we thought we would take a little bit of a detour to talk about David because um, his life was very influential on ours in a pretty significant way, even though we only met uh, a couple times.
1: Right. We met him because he did this thing at North Carolina Yearly Meeting Conservative Annual Sessions. It was called Morning Communion and Conversation. And basically, it it looked like coffee and donuts.
0: That's because there were coffee and donuts there.
1: Indeed. But it was at six in the morning. Anyone who wanted to be part of it was invited to join in. He brewed up the coffee and brought some donuts, and the gathering began with a reading of scripture, an epistle of foxes, something to sort of get the conversation rolling, and then it unfolded into uh, something that was a little different than worship sharing, more engaged in conversation than typically the form that Quakers have of worship sharing, which has lots of spaces of silence in between. But always... A deep unfolding. And, yeah. and then we brought that form to New York yearly meeting and bought a big coffee pot and a lot of donut holes. And for years, brewed coffee at 530 in the morning and engaged friends in conversation.
0: Yeah. And I think the way that it unfolded there in North Carolina, which was inspiring, is that it was a conversation. I mean... It wasn't worship sharing. It was friends trying to process what had happened in business meeting the day before, or maybe they had a really powerful experience in worship and they wanted to share it with the group and have people talk about it and share what scriptures it reminded them of. So we were having conversation, but it would drift into worship. So in some ways, it felt like a big opportunity, that like it was a that kind of capital O sense of someone naming the space as a space in which we could process together, pray together, and worship together. And... That kind of being together, of not just cognitive conversation, but but kind of processing conversation that could drift in and out of deep worship, that could change focus, people that that could be steered towards kind of scriptural reflection or religious ref- spiritual reflection, and 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 then allowed for deeper one-on-one conversations to occur later. Well, that's just not something I think that we had an- encountered before. I think they're still doing it in New York Yearly Meeting. Is that true?
1: We passed on a whole lot of coffee cups to uh, some friends in New York Yearly Meeting, so they might be. We should check it out.
0: Friends from New York, um, are there a group of people that make an enormous quantity of coffee and buy donuts for 6 a.m. during New York Yearly Meeting sessions? Inquiring minds want to know.
1: I just want to go back and say that you mentioned capital O opportunity and that we'll put a link in the show notes with a description of and some resources on, on what opportunities are. Cause I think that it's something that's worth digging a little deeper into for those who are curious. Yeah.
0: The other thing I want to do here is a little um, kind of personally disclosive, but I think it also gets onto something that is really important for this episode in general, um, which is, how do we process experiences which seem to be kind of outside of the realm of uh, kind of scientific or rational possibility? So um, Elle often talks about the ways in which um, Jesus comes to her or the archangels and how she sees this light and this power, um, and it's unclear whether or not we're supposed to understand that as like a a metaphysical thing that actually happened right she believes jesus came to her but she also uses the language of you know she has the inward scope turned inside and how she experiences that is jesus so it could be read as kind of a profound visual metaphorical thing and i don't always know what to do with that um, but i also have had some of those kind of experiences myself And one of the most powerful ones is with this guy, David Martin, down in North Carolina Yearly Meeting. Um, I had been having dreams about um, crows uh, for years um, who would kind of, I would be standing somewhere giving vocal ministry in my dreams, and there would be these two crows, one on each arm, who were just there. It didn't ever make any sense, but I had this dream like a dozen times over the course of three or four years or something. And when we were down in North Carolina, um, uh, after the end of the third day of this coffee communion and donuts thing, this guy, David Martin asked if I would stay behind because he had some scripture he wanted to read to me and everyone else got up and left. And uh, he reads the passage first Kings uh, 17. And it goes, um, I don't remember where we would have started. Uh, essentially, Elijah is told to kind of go, um, go out near the the uh, river Jordan and just kind of like chill there. And and God says to uh, Elijah, and don't worry, um, the ravens will feed you. And so he goes out there and drinks from the Jordan. And then the ravens come and bring him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drinks from the river. But after a while, the river dries up because there's no rain in the land. And I remember just totally feeling like gobsmacked because what I heard, I mean, I knew the scripture generally, but suddenly I had this idea because in the dreams, it was always the case that the birds were there when and I was kind of giving vocal ministry. I didn't always remember what I was saying in the dreams, but it was always very clearly they were like part of what vocal ministry was. And then this guy who doesn't know me at all says to me kind of via our, you know, the our shared text in this Book of Kings, First Kings, "Don't worry, the birds will feed you." And I remember just totally feeling like it was inexplicable. Like, how, there's no way he could have known that for years I've been dreaming about mm, these birds. uh th- Like, that's not something that is trackable. I guess it's he could have randomly selected this text because it's not unheard of. That is to say, we certainly do share that whole book in common. And so, like, you pick anyone, it'll be like, well, maybe that's one that matters to him. But I remember feeling in my body, like, okay. Tend to the vocal ministry. It will feed you. And, you know, I think sometimes that uh, I don't understand what it is we're doing. <laughs> um, I don't have a really good cognitive explanation for what happened with David Martin. Um, I know how it felt to me and how the consequences of it played out because I gave over even more significantly to travel and to vocal ministry at the point. I don't know what it means for Jesus to walk into a room while Elizabeth Dearborn is talking to Parker Palmer or for people to do faith healing. Like, none of that stuff makes any sense to me. Um, I don't know how to process it. And I think it's important to tell the story regardless. I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if I quote unquote believe it. And I'm not so sure belief is the important thing. Do, do you, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but I'm wondering. You know, because this is stuff that isn't often talked about, and it seems like part of what we feel under the weight to do here is to talk about things that don't often get airtime. Like, what? How do you process some of this stuff? Obviously, you know my story, but like, how do you track some of this?
1: There's a couple of things that I I hear in the sharing of that story and your question. One of them goes back to something that uh, Elle said earlier in the conversation with her, which was that she had a dilemma. What she was encountering didn't make sense, but she trusted her experience. So maybe you can't explain why it happens, but you have the experience. And if we are open to trusting the experience, I think we're also open to receiving further experience and then we begin to have a language of these experiences or a set of these experiences that form contours and we can if we talk about it which i agree we don't do enough and we should do more if we talk about it with each other then we can begin to share how how the contours and landscapes of these experiences work in our lives individually and as a community, and provide support for each other. The other thing that occurs to me as you shared that story about David Martin reading to you from 1 Kings, when you say, how could he have known about the crows? He didn't know me at all. When Quakers come together in worship, what the goal, quote-unquote, of worship is, at least for early friends, and, and I think this still holds true in some circles, but the goal is communion. The goal is communion in a in the Spirit. It's worship in the unity of the Spirit collectively. So that same phenomenon that people kind of joke about where they're thinking of a particular thing and testing to see if it's a piece of vocal ministry that they're supposed to give in a meeting for worship and someone across the room rises and delivers that same piece of vocal ministry, but does it better. I think that it's that unity of the spirit that connects us in that space that we don't know how to talk about and prompts us to share what is right in the moment.
0: For me, the point of meeting for worship is communion with God. This is facilitated by the presence of others who are in this same field. They may not have the same words, but they're headed in the same inward and Godward direction. We worship together because we are all needed in this process of helping each other approach God. And this approaching needs humility, grounding, openness, inspiration, and guidance. No one person can provide all of this. The more gifts that are rightly shared in the process of worship which is at Sunday at 10 and all during the rest of our collective lives, the more likely we are to receive the most true message of love. Love and God is so vast and gets interpreted in so many ways and is so multifaceted and multifunctional that we must sink to the deepest places we can, as a group, to best receive what is ours to receive. Gordon Bishop, Grass Valley Friends Meeting, Pacific Yearly Meeting.
1: During, during all this time when you were so clearly aware of guidance, did you test the... The, the leadings or test what was emerging with um, either a committee from your meeting or that or that group of people who came together you know sort of from different meetings the gifts, the group. The gifts group did you guys provide clearness and or accountability for each other?
2: So um, yes in the initial years but that was before I was doing this work then in the uh, in the Church of the Savior, I mean, I had people who were, were profoundly guided, who mm-hmm. were some of my buddies with whom I could ask questions. Um, I was not, I never found in the church, I was in the Church of the Savior for five years. Mm. But I never felt like it was home mm. for me. So I also had an oversight committee as part of the Delphi meeting. Mm that um, really didn't work for me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Can you talk about Pe- that? People were not familiar with the level of guidance that I was operating mm-hmm. under. Mm-hmm. Um There was no... I mean, I needed real guidance. I had gotten real guidance in, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I had people who sat with me and either they got it or I got it. I was used to
3: mm-hmm.
2: operating in a community like that in the Church of the Savior the same. I mean, people were operating on a felt sense, a known track, like they understood the process of receiving guidance in a, in, and could translate it. And, you know, at a Delphi meeting, that was not the case for me, and I couldn't, uh, educate them. I had too many like there were too many questions for me about um how to inc- how how this life was gonna unfold and also being married to Richard who was not who was came to meeting but wasn't and taught in a Quaker school but wasn't really on on board. I mean, he was totally on board with who I was and where I was going, but not it just felt like there are only so many Pots you can stir when you're again when you have a small child and you know I just so at that point and and people uh, there were people in meeting who understood me but they were not on this committee
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I at that point I stepped back From. and that's probably when I went into the Church of the Savior
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and after five years in the Church of the Savior I had a different.
0: So I' mean, this and this is interesting to me um particularly on this note. I think that that I don't know what I need to think that experience is is familiar not just to me but to a number of people yeah. that that were for me, it's almost ten years traveling, and for her, it's more like fifteen that story of I'm trying to do the right thing and get accountability and get oversight, but the people who've been appointed to do that can't. And, yeah. And so the thing I'm wondering if you could talk about is that the struggle with that is to then not judge, is to say, well, why don't you people get it? <laughs> Come, like, I need some help. I need some support here. And then unintentional, holier than thatness regarding like, I don't have time for you. So to heck with you, which I don't really feel like it's a generous, compassionate response. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what was it like to be in those meetings where it didn't feel like you're being supported? What how did you do, how was it? What? Well,
2: I mean, it was everything that you say. Yeah. I mean, it was frustrating. It was depressing. It was mm-hmm. disappointing. Mm-hmm. It was like, don't you guys understand your history? I mean, don't we have an experiential base here? You know, like, but, I mean, that's kind of, it just wasn't mm-hmm. alive.
0: And So what do we do? I mean, what do we do?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think you follow your guidance. Mm-hmm. You follow your guidance. So in my case, I went to the Church of the Savior. Yeah. So, which was right there. Which had Quakers in it,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: which had, uh, the kind of vitality that would support this whole movement I was uh, becoming a healer. And, um, uh, and my daughter was happy there. And, uh, by the time, uh, by the time I had finished that, I, I wasn't as clear as I am now. I mean, I, but, but I had begun to be in Thich Nhat Hans practice and Richard I think had been ordained and he in two thousand one he was ordained as a teacher. So he his whole awakening into spiritual practice and uh ripeness, shall we say, because he of who he is, um, you know, added this whole other conversation. So I stayed in both conversations. <laughs> steadily for a while but i would say i'm not a friend in the way that i used to be i'm not i don't find there the heart of conversation Mm
4: -hmm.
2: but it's not about the jesus thing it's about the opening of the heart Mm -hmm. and the capacity to speak from what your true experience is Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I've been at Putney Meeting for ten years, and I've, or however long I've been in nine years, and I've 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 served a lot on pastoral care committees, and you know, like that. But um what do we do? This is a great question. I mean, my 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 uh, during the years that I was uh, that I'm describing to you, I mean, I had these powerful friendships mm-hmm. with people who were also on that frequency. well, right. so you sit down with Frank Massey, you're not sitting down with somebody who's, you know, a leaf blowing in the wind. I mean, the guy has deep roots and an alive spiritual life and a foundation in the society of friends. You know? so, So how do you educate your meeting you know, so I mean, I would say Richard and I participate in meeting, but we participate in a big way in the Thich Nhat Hanh life, mm. because that is the place where we're in a position to shape the culture, and the culture is deep mm. and open, mm. and that's that's what we feel is of service to the to humanity, mm. if you will. So that's my solution, but I would say the 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 you know the the point is to to follow the guide, whatever the guide, however the guide leads mm-hmm. you.
0: And it doesn't sound to me like you feel like you gave anything up. Is that right?
2: You mean in being open to that other guidance?
0: Yeah. When you said, you know, I don't understand myself as a Quaker the way I did before. I didn't hear a whole lot of loss or sorrow in that comment. Is that?
2: No. I feel like I have um, come come to understand come to understand that the guidance for me has been in in this I mean to live in two traditions Mm. so for me that uh, feels Mm. uh, since what do you call that sincere or Mm -hmm. authentic Mm -hmm. that that is what I've been asked I'm following what's true I just couldn't really get it
3: Mm.
2: in the beginning because I was so like what Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know this is like my people my roots my Mm -hmm. tradition my ministry my Mm -hmm but the you know uh we're given what we're given there's a there's the there's this experience in the society of friends where many people are quite alive and and uh, others have have joined Quakers or you know are in a in a in a less alive place mm-hmm. i mean how do it's a great question like how do you what what is your accountability to that tradition? That that might be a way of framing the question. And I would say my accountability is to the the, the guidance, not to the form. Mm. That's what I would say for myself.
1: Whether because of the dominant culture, or human nature, or some combination of the two, for some, the journey of ascent never ends. They trade the games of youth for the corporate ladder, the social pyramid, or the alluring world of politics with their power, prestige, and possessions. There's a hook for each of us to pull us back into the center of the story, back onto the never-ending climb. But it is only when I give up the journey of ascent and begin the journey of descent that meaningful change happens and deep spiritual growth can begin. Putting oneself at the center doesn't work because it ultimately must fail. No matter what attention I give to my personal development, my individual rights, my physical and emotional and mental health, my financial security, my estate planning, ultimately the me at the center of this story dies. Whatever we build on and around, other than God, ultimately dies. It lets us down. When that realization hits, it is devastating. No softer word will do. Lloyd Lee Wilson, from the essay, He Must Increase, in the book, wrestling with our faith tradition.
0: So I think, you know, that Lord Lee uh, passage that you found for us um, is really interesting and, and one of the ways I hear it, uh, at the end, you know, he says, everything except that which is built on God um, kind of falls away. And I think there's some there's one way to hear that in which we need to kind of be oriented on God in the kind of abstract or in the metaphysical, like orient towards the Godhead, like the God all, all, of all time. My, 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 right. I I struggle with that, that version of it. I do, though, think that the Christian tradition has a God that is self-emptying, right? The technical language, right, is canonic, right? It empties into Jesus, right? So the story is that we have the fullness of God emptying in into the humanity of Jesus, that a person becomes um, divine. So clearly, do they listen to the divine will? Um, so, in that sense, when I hear Lloyd Lee saying we have to be oriented towards God, I I hear it as the possibility that living for others is living for God. That scripturally, if being present to community, being present to living our lives such that justice is lived into more fully, that the peaceable reign of God enters um, more fully through the work in the world, that the least of these are are fed and clothed, that we that we become friends and 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 bonded and in solidarity with the folks that need that the most, we liberate ourselves, we, we engage in the work of justice in the world, then we are oriented on God. That God isn't some kind of abstract idea or belief or commitment to some kind of principle, but that being oriented on God is a practice of self-emptying um, and serving one another and that sometimes that self-emptying may mean emptying yourself of all of the bad things that society has told you about yourself so that you can fill yourself up with love more. We've talked about that before. Yeah. Sometimes the thing you need to empty out of yourself is all the trash that the world has told you about yourself so that you can come to a fullness. Some people need to empty themselves of their desires for you know, money and fame, and some people might need to empty themselves of the idea that they're not worth nothing. But either way, the orientation isn't just about what the world gave you. The orientation is to each other, towards love, towards be- building up the c- beloved community and, and justice. Um, and I think, I think that part of what the story that uh, Elle is telling is very much about that. Just follow the guide, right? She says, um, my accountability is to the guidance, not to the form. And I'm accountable to others who've been accountable to that guidance. Follow the life. Yeah, follow the life. And there's there's power there. I mean, um, last I heard, she was no longer worshiping with friends. Um, she had shifted, um, not entirely to Tikkunahans community, but Tikkunahans community and uh, I believe a congregationalist church. That that in her pursuit of following the guidance um she left our community and i think she probably would welcome hellos from people still but her sense of calling kind of left and i think this is an important kind of thing to track um in our um in our work here is that sometimes the leading leaves you um and sometimes not only does the leading to serve lead you but in in this case and for the, the first time um, her clarity is to leave the tradition. Um, and I think that that's important to name too. Um, how how do you hear that? How do you process that? What is how does that sit with you?
1: I think it comes directly out of her fidelity to the guidance and not to the form. It's not about Quakerism per se, but continuing to engage with communities of people. And I think for Elle, communities of people are very important who are on fire and who are following that guidance. We've known other people for whom it has been the case that being faithful to the leadings and guidance that they've received has meant leaving the religious society of friends, people who grow up in it. And they continue to be faithful in the work that they do in the world because their adherence is to the guidance and not to the form above all else. I mean, and that's the, that's the opening of early friends or one of them is to follow the life and power.
0: I'm struck also with this like incredible, uh, at least on the surface, paradoxical comment that she makes, but it just seems really right to me. She says, um, "I want to be in a place where," when she's talking about the fact that she and Richard are doing more and more work in the in the Thich Nhat way, she said, "I want to be in a place where we can shape the culture. A place." That is profoundly deep and open. That's fascinating. She wants to be in a community of people that is willing to allow its culture to be shifted. And how is it willing to let its culture be shifted? Because its culture is so deep and open. Um, that's really tricky. And, and I don't know anything about Tiknahan's communities, just his writing, but I imagine that part of the way it shakes down is a confidence in the practices and the traditions at such a level that adaptation can take place because there's a kind of shared understanding of what's at work. And it makes me think, man, maybe what's going on in the Religious Society of Friends for for Elle here is that she feels like people don't know enough about where we come from. You know, she even says like our own history and because of it, we're not able to experiment or um what does she say? Shape the culture because we don't know necessarily how to play with it right, right? It's like harder to improvise if you don't know your scales. Um and so you just keep playing what you're playing um until you learn them and then you can play something other than that.
1: I guess I hear the the deep and Open with a real emphasis on the and that you need both to be strongly rooted and certainly her if we go back to earlier in the conversation she she talks about the, her first year of really learning about Quakerism was with people who were all deeply rooted in the tradition and encouraged an openness to a listening guidance I think that the being deeply rooted in in the tradition allows for openness at least in this tradition
4: What
3: what
0: do you think? How do you understand ministry in the religious society, friends? Do you, uh,
3: do you yeah. talk
0: about that, or do you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> talk to me some
0: more. Like, what does it mean for you? So, so, so you know. So the devil's advocate position on this is we don't do ministry. Other kinds of Christians do that. Um, we got rid of it all. Um, we don't have ministers. We don't do ministry. Every you know.
2: Oh, everyone is a minister. Sure, like in that sense. Yeah. Oh, that's, 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 I mean, what I understand from the history of the Society of Friends is that we have different gifts.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have different gifts. So some people have the gift of being, uh, elders. Some people have the gift of being, you know, good, uh, nuts and bolts people. You know, they're, they're gonna keep the meeting house machinery working. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, it's about being faithful to your gifts. That's the way, that's the avenue that I have mm-hmm. for me that came out of the Church of the Savior. So, I mean, in the Church of the Savior, when you come in, uh, not the whole Church of the Savior, I can't speak about that. I can speak about the Seekers Church, mm-hmm. which is the, that the community that I was part of. You come into that community, and they say, so what, I mean, they basically say over coffee, what, what are your gifts? And if, you, if that's a foreign question to you, they say, okay, here's some, want to have a tea? Let's talk about. You know, like, there's a, a connectedness to that question follow up, like, okay, I'll be in my class. I'm going to teach a class on spiritual gifts on Tuesday night, beginning in, or you want to read this, or, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, um, that's the fundamental conversation is not ministry. What is your ministry? Mm-hmm. What is your, why are your gifts? Mm-hmm. Because gifts are at the heart of the, I mean, if I didn't have these hands that I thought I was supposed to use, you know, like, uh, I mean, yes, visions of Jesus, yes, but the... Uh, so I need to live a life where I'm accessible by whatever this force is that's trying to use me. But, uh, I, I mean, for me, those... There was a lot of formation in Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. There were courses being taught. I took those. It was useful to get the whole history of friends in one of those Quaker adult study programs you know all of that useful but the dynamic that was going on at pendle hill was the lived experience of ministers in worship so i don't think that can be taught
3: mm-hmm. in
2: any other way except in the living form mm-hmm. so that's why i say so you know get a get get a get a gathering once a year that happens at the same time that has the people who want to come and that that will be the instruction,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that is that is the meeting of ministers and elders
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the modern day.
0: I'm wondering. Um, you, you just talked about um, the ways in which kind of surrendering or kind of following that guidance, you know, changed how you eat or how you got around and things like that. Are there is there a time or 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 a moment when you can remember? Kind of um, being hard necked about that guidance or not listening. I mean, is there a story around what it was like to kind of not surrender to that? Oh, uh, sure.
2: I mean, that's the, that's in a sense that that's the more interesting side. So as the uh, as the marriage is developing with Richard, I think I'm in year three. I have a two year old child, and I have a history of. Um, Having had uh mm, you know sort of romantic inclinations with women as well as men and a, and a woman appears in my life you know you're in massage school you have a lot of body experience with each other and she's she's really interested in taking me out of this uh, partnership with Richard, and I just follow right along in this i mean totally just and when I talked in in um I mean, I'm totally intrigued with who she is. When I went down to meet with Carolyn Treadway and um the Bulldog, David the Bulldog, David got me to tell this story to him.
4: <laughs>
2: and, you know, it was just at the moment that I needed to be elder. You know, like, you're doing what? Mm-hmm. You know, you're hanging out with this woman who wants to take you to bed. You haven't gone yet, but she wants to. You know, what, what is it that you're doing here?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know? And what is it that is, uh, in you that's being taken in that direction instead of in something that is more life giving? You know, he said, I have to pray for her. Pray for her mm-hmm. because you're, you know, you're stepping, your, your, your guidance is off here. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful. That was extremely helpful. And, you know, just immediately, I mean, I, I, but I immediately told Richard what was, you know, sort of what was actually happening with this woman that was, you know, that I was trying to navigate. So that's another piece of, you know, in ministry, you're dealing with very strong energies. And you're all gonna, I mean, all of us are gonna have. That's an unknown thing where because you're dealing with very strong energies, people are attracted to you or you're attracted and it's kind of like
3: mm-hmm. the
2: whole thing. There's a whole other piece like it. Who do you talk to that with? Mm-hmm. that you know, So I was really grateful that David got this story out because I couldn't tell mm-hmm. this group of people that had Sandra Cronk and Bill and Fran and all of that. I've never told them that story. I could now but at the time I couldn't tell mm-hmm. Look, I'm, I'm in a I'm in a, I'm sort of having a you know, a sweetie kind of a relationship with this woman who would like to take me to bed. And I I just couldn't say that. You know? Mm-hmm. But, so, yeah. I forget where your question came from. Well, no, from I mean, because I think is that the helpful? other,
0: yeah, well, it's also the part that, like, e- even people that we might identify as faithful, or, you know, even when we mm-hmm. started the conversation, you said really deep, profound people. Like, and I think you're one of those people that doesn't mean that you've, like, you're over it. <laughs> or that, like somehow those decisions kind of go away. It's always, or I think, often a struggle for people to kind of remember to say yes to the guidance as opposed to the other things that uh-huh.
2: pulls away. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm, I, I, um, you know, Bill and Fran were very are still Fran still, but Bill, Bill was quite clear in his storytelling and it never stopped the guidance for him but i also knew fran and she did all of the nuts and bolts to make it possible for him to have that life Hmm. she's now married to somebody who does a whole lot for her so you know you that that's another piece of Hmm. who bill Tabor was they said she paid the bills, she got the car fixed, she, you know, uh, well, he sat in the back garden, you know. So that's another piece of, you know, I think partnership can be very mm. uh, essential. Really, how do you, you know, how do you fill the well? If you, you know, how do you keep uh, your finances? I mean, they're all being, they're traveling in the ministry. It, I mean, it has, I mean, and being in the world at the same time, this is a very complex. I think it's a complicated life to figure out in the modern day. It's it's mm. it's hard. So how do you how do you navigate it?
0: We want to thank Elizabeth L. Dearborn for sitting with us. Um, it was an incredible afternoon and a gift to be with this friend and so thanks to you out there um, and thanks to you all for being able to be with us as we kind of sat in the wait and the um, wake of that conversation we will be around next friday with another episode so check us out on ocacshow.org
1: you can also visit our Facebook page
0: on Caring a Concern.
1: And every Friday at 4 ish Eastern Time, a new episode becomes available on the webpage, linked to on the Facebook page, and also on iTunes and Google Play. So
0: keep uh, the listening happen and let us know if there are any ways that you all are using it out there in your meetings or in your own devotional lives, other questions you've got, things you'd like to hear us talk about more specifically, um, things you just want to uh, correct, maybe?
1: Yeah. Do you have a concern with the way things are going?
0: Uh, Please let us know. And um, before we go, um, we want to make sure we give thanks to our committees of support and care and accountability here at Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting, without which Christina and I uh, couldn't do um, what we're doing.
1: We also want to thank the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting for the financial support of this podcast.
0: As well as the Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund.
1: And the Salem Quarter of New England Yearly Meeting.
0: Thanks to them and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next
1: week. Thanks. Bye-bye.